Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and joining me today are my colleagues... Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, executive editor. And Steve Usden, Washington editor. On today's podcast, proof of concept base editing data from Verve the latest developments in the Inflation Reduction Act, and we take a look at deals of note, including a tie-up between Legend and Novartis, Biotheus and BioNTech, a few deals out of Korea, as well as the latest big NASDAQ IPO, and that's from Cargo Therapeutics. But first, if you find yourself in London for the Jefferies Healthcare Conference, look out for your podcast regulars, Simone Fishburne, our editor-in-chief, and our colleague Stephen Hansen. They are there attending several of the industry events, one of which is BioCentury and BIA's evening event on Tuesday in London. It's called Preparing for the Biotech Breakout. And that includes a fireside chat that Simone will be having with former Ablink CEO Edwin Moses. And of course, there'll be plenty of C-level networking and I hear some cocktails. You can register at biocenturyjefferies.com. There's a small fee. There are discounts for Biocentury subscribers and BIA members. My colleagues hope to see you there. All right, let's turn to Verve. The company has proof of concept data out over the weekend for one of its in vivo base editing programs in hypercholesterolemia. And the stock is sharply lower today. Lauren, how are you thinking about these data? Thanks, Jeff. You know, I think they do have proof of concept data here that in vivo base editing, when you're targeting the liver with this product is something that works. They're saying that they've achieved close to or at the maximum level of PCSK9 depletion that you'd expect to get from targeting the liver. They've seen the sort of reduction in in LDL cholesterol levels that you'd expect to get from that level of PCSK9 knockdown. Um, you know, I think that the question here is really about the indication that they've used to get this proof of concept. Um, you know, there are two issues. There are potential safety issues that may or may not be relevant. There were two serious cardiovascular events in the nine patients that they've reported on, I guess, 10 total, but one of them doesn't have valuable data yet. And one of them was the day, you know, there was a myocardial infarction the day after treatment, which has raised some red flags, but these are also very sick patients, you know, very severe um, cardiovascular disease. So it's hard to tell at this point if that's actually related to the treatment. And then the other issue is that, you know, this is the first time we're seeing an in vivo base editing therapy, and it's against a target where we have other modalities that can achieve a pretty similar level of PCSK9 knockdown. So sort of the real differentiation that you're going to see here is the fact that this is a one-time therapy, which is, you know, a a huge advance, but it it does raise questions of whether or not patients are are ready to take the risks and, you know, accept the unknowns that come with this kind of new modality therapy when the only differentiator that we can see at this time is the way that it's administered. 
Yeah, so that makes me wonder why why you would choose to go in an indication like this. I mean, you've got the benefits of the fact that you can benchmark it against other modalities for the same indication. But like you say, you've also got to think about what patients and payers are going to say when you're not producing a, a clinical benefit that's startlingly better than what they can get with existing drugs. Well, it might come down to how important that compliance factor is, right? I think this is a condition where even people who have had prior heart attacks, who should have every motivation in the world of taking their statins, a year later, most of them aren't. So it, it could be where if FERB is able to show that these AEs were, you know, eventually with more data, probably weren't treatment related, but that the treatment effect is in fact durable and it is one and done. I don't know. That might win people over. How, how long will it take to determine that the treatment effect is durable? Well, that's a good question. I think the longest patients they followed so far were now six months where they did see continued efficacy. Um, and we'll, we'll go from there. All right. What is next here, Lauren? Continuing to dose patients in this trial, um, you know, the positive efficacy results that they saw were in the two higher dose levels that they're calling the therapeutic dose levels, and they have a few more patients to dose there. They're going to go into phase two expansion. They're starting a U.S. trial. The IND in the U.S. was cleared after FDA saw these data, you know, and, and saw the, the potential adverse events that could or could not be related. And this isn't the only PCSK9 program in the pipeline. There's also Verve 102, which hits the same target. Is they're going after the same population at least initially, and um, you know this is more targeted to the liver. This has a, a Galnet lipid nanoparticle, and I'm interested to hear from them the reason that you you'd want to go for a more targeted, more potent therapy and why they expect to see differentiation with this next generation product, um, just given the fact that you're sort of, you know, knocking this down at potentially the highest level that you can. And they're saying that if you are restricted to liver targeting, you know, there's not much better that we can do. I guess lower dose, maybe fewer side effects is something that we'll be looking for as they move this into the clinic, I think next year. I think that's exactly right. I think they're hoping to get away with a lower dose. Uh, maybe the other thing to point out here is that Eli Lilly does have an option to both programs. And I think the company is guiding to Lilly not making a decision until after both 101 and 102 have their phase one data. All right. And if you are interested in base editing, our colleague Danielle Golovin did a deep dive on all things base editing, uh, sort of an analysis deck. You can find it on BioCentury. Dot com. All right, let's turn to Steve. Steve, I know you're gearing up for yet another government shutdown or potential government shutdown. Those warnings of those things are becoming almost as frequent as your stories on what I really want to talk to you about, the Inflation Reduction Act. You had two stories last week. Tell us what's new. So one of the stories that I wrote was about a study that the National Pharmaceutical Council, which is a think tank that's funded by biopharma companies, published in Health Affairs, which is, you know, the preeminent journal for health policy. In the story, you know, what I pointed out, and a number of people have actually written to me and said, like this analogy, is that the IRA is not like a dam that completely blocks the flow of drug development. It's more like a set of boulders that have been placed in a stream 
creating treacherous obstacles and rapids. And so the idea is that drug development is going to continue, but its path is going to be inexorably altered. I think that's something that's important to think about because every time there's a deal, especially a deal involving a small molecule drug, there are people that say, oh, well, see, that means that the IRA doesn't have any effect on anything because companies are still doing deals. And my point is that that's not really true. So the, in this study, one of the things that the National Pharmaceutical Council did was it looked at subsequent indications for, um, for three drugs, two of which are on the initial list of drugs that are going to be subject to the Medicare price negotiation program. And it looked at the timing of them. And basically what it's saying is, if the IRA had been in effect, would the sponsors have conducted the trials that led to these subsequent indications? And the answer pretty much is no. Some of the indications, the data for them came in at year seven, for example, for a small molecule that under the IRA would be subject to price negotiation in year nine. Two years wouldn't be enough enough time to uh, recoup the investment in those trials and those indications and to make a return on that. Um, so they probably wouldn't have done them. That's basically the take-home message from the study, which is that companies will continue to do, they continue to develop uh, drugs and continue to develop small molecule drugs, but they're not going to develop as many indications for them as they would have in the absence of the IRA. And often, the subsequent indications are really important products for patients. The second message from this report is that they think that companies will delay their initial launches of products until they're ready to launch for what they believe will be their biggest or at least a, a really big indication. And that's important in cases when companies had the option to file earlier with a smaller indication and then a year, two or three years later, come with a, a larger indication. What this report suggests is that the companies aren't going to do that. And what, what I think is going to happen is that companies aren't even going to say that they're not doing it. They're just, you know, there have been some companies that have stepped forward now and said that either they're considering or that they're going to delay the launch of a smaller indication so that they can launch with a bigger one at the same time or bigger one first and then the smaller one. That's obviously um, really disappointing news for anybody who has the condition that would have been treated by the smaller indication. I think that companies are going to do this, but I think they're not going to talk about it because it's just going to generate negative publicity. The law is not likely to be changed in the short term. And so why, why tell people that we could have done something to help you, but we're not doing it because it's not as profitable as waiting? Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. Um, we did see, I mean, you've written about conversations with various CEOs speaking to this uh, subject. And, um, you know, we've cataloged all your stories on a uh, Inflation Reduction Act page. So they're easy to find. Uh, quickly, I'm curious about the latest in the AstraZeneca IRA lawsuit. What significant development happened last week? Well, there was another round in the motions that were filed back and forth between the government and AstraZeneca. Uh, recall that AstraZeneca, in addition to making arguments that the IRA violated the violates the, the Constitution in various ways, also said that it violates the Administrative Procedures Act. And one of the ways that it says that AstraZeneca claims that the IRA 
violates Administrative Procedures Act is that CMS has decided that it can aggregate drugs that were approved under separate NDAs or BLAs as a single drug. And what the government says is that, um, yes, CMS has said that it can do that, and it has done that. But it made two arguments to AstraZeneca. One of them was that that's actually in compliance with the law, and the government made their argument for why they think that it's legal and proper for CMS to do that. The other thing that the government says is that the only AstraZeneca drug that's in the first cohort of drugs that are subject to the Medicare price negotiation program, Farshiga, a diabetes drug, is only approved under one NDA. It doesn't fit into this category of having multiple NDAs or BLAs aggregated into a single product. So CMS says, first, it says, you know, it's actually legal. It's fine for us to do this. And second, in any case, we're not even doing it for the product that AstraZeneca is suing us about. So this isn't really relevant for the lawsuit, according to the government. The other point that AstraZeneca made about the Administrative Procedures Act is that CMS has said that a drug will be considered a sole source drug, even if there's a generic or a biosimilar that's been approved, if the marketing of the approved generic or biosimilar competitor isn't what they call bona fide marketing, if it isn't really being marketed in a, in a way that produces competition. And what uh, the government has said is also that doesn't violate the Administrative Procedures Act. And in fact, the IRA suggests that that's exactly what CMS should do. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this lawsuit, because those claims that AstraZeneca is making apply to many of the other drugs that are in this first cohort of uh, 10 drugs that are subject to Medicare drug negotiation. And, you know, whatever the judge decides here, we could see that echoed in other cases. Thanks for that, Steve. All right, let's get to some deals. Legend, well known for its landmark cross-border CAR-T deal with Janssen a few years back, has a deal out today with Novartis for CAR-T therapies targeting DLL3. Company gained $100 million up front for that. Lauren, what stands out to you about this deal? Yeah, so this is structured a lot differently than the J&J deal that Legend did. This is a licensing deal. Novartis is getting worldwide rights to this CAR T-cell program, this first one against DLL3 from Legend. And I spoke with Legend earlier today. They are really hoping that this will sort of give them a test of whether rapid manufacturing is, you know, and specifically the T-charge platform from Novartis is going to be part of the solution to the solid tumor CAR T-cell problem. So, you know, so far in heme cancers, we have some early evidence that CAR T-cells, CD19 CAR T's using this manufacturing process may actually be a little bit more effective, possibly have a safety edge. We're not, it's it's early data, but um, this is the first time that they're applying this manufacturing platform to um, a solid tumor CAR T-cell. So here you're sort of combining the special sauce from Legend's CAR T-cell structures that that have made Carvicti so effective. This is like the tandem CAR design where they have a CAR that targets two separate epitopes on um, the DLL3 in this case, the the tumor antigen. And then you're combining it with 
it with what looks like it could be a promising new manufacturing technology. So why choose small cell lung cancer as an entry point into solid tumors? Is there a reason that indication might benefit from rapid manufacturing? Well, so small cell lung cancer has been a really tough indication in general for these cancer immunotherapies. There's some evidence that DLL3 is a really promising target in this space. We just saw some encouraging bispecific data at ESMO this year for the target. But there's also the idea that for solid tumors, you've got this immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment where that's a big problem for small cell lung cancer. And having you know, T cells that persist and that aren't exhausted, I think it, it has to be an advantage there and something that could potentially improve safety. So I'm not sure if there's an actual reason that this is a good indication for, you know, to test for proof of concept, but it's a promising target and it's an indication where there's a, a very high unmet need. All right. Some other Asia deals are on our radar. Another China biotech, Biotheus, has again partnered with BioNTech this time for a bispecific ADC combo. It's the German biotech's fifth in licensing deal this year with a Chinese biotech. Biotheus, if you're interested in learning more about their technology, uh, our colleague Danielle recently spoke to CBO June Bao for an emerging company profile on them. And we also saw two deals, two rather big East-West deals for Korea Biotech. Selena, you edited that piece. What did you find? Well, it was interesting that in the span of two days last week, we saw the two deals out of South Korea with the biggest upfronts that we've seen in the last three years. One was Novartis accessing a cancer therapy, and one was Bristol-Myers Swib accessing an HDAC inhibitor. So they're both early stage therapies. The one by Orem Therapeutics is a pretty innovative, interesting technology. So this is a targeted protein degrader for a target called GSPT1, but it is kind of set apart in that Orem uses antibodies to direct targeted protein degraders to specific tissues. So targeted protein degraders, these are small molecules. They can enter a lot of cells, right? and can be somewhat indiscriminate. Uh, in this case, they're covalently linking it to a CD33 to enrich this activity at the tumor. And that got them $100 million up front. Yeah, we just haven't seen as much deal activity, at least of this size, compared with the China deals. So uh, obviously, two deals does not make a massive trend, but who knows? Korea Biotech, maybe starting to come of age. I know JP Morgan is right around the corner. Jeffries is right now. So perhaps uh, some Korean biotechs are out there looking for partners. Let's turn to IPOs. Next generation car T company Cargo Therapeutics raised nearly $300 million in its offering on NASDAQ late last week. But it priced on the low end of its range and its shares traded down on the first day, much like gene therapy play Lexio Therapeutics the week prior. Cargo became the largest biotech IPO this year to see a first day drop. Perhaps yet another signal that the IPO window is just not ready to open yet. Cargo will likely be the last high profile IPO on NASDAQ this year. There's a few smaller deals 
in the queue. Uh, I know there's new filings from Sequoia vaccines. That's pretty tiny at $20 million. Fibro Biologics, bit bigger at $74 million. And there also tend to be some end of year IPOs that we see in Korea and Japan. So, but as far as NASDAQ goes, uh, we'll see. And speaking of East West deals up on biocentry.com, you'll find our editor-in-chief, Simone Fishburne's analysis of the cross-border transactions. She writes that China's strength is innovation on innovation and Western partners are lining up. Uh, her analysis was part of the data curated and analyzed for our China Healthcare Summit and our recent East-West Biopharma Summit that we put on with Bay Helix and McKinsey. The third edition of that will be coming up in Singapore in March. Well, thanks for tuning in this week. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.